From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Limited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 251 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, John Sakari. John, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. We are we have another storm heading in as we speak. You guys so. have been getting rain, 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 rain. We have. And wind. Just terrible wind. Ugh. So we had rain earlier today, and now we're getting the wind. And then we will get another atmospheric river, as Ugh. they call it. So Anyway, and I have new roses that are due to be delivered Thursday, and the ground is going to be too wet to plant them. So, <laughs> okay, so wait, do you hold on to them for a few days and then? Put yeah, them? yeah. Okay, I I have some. Um, you can soak them for like a day or two, and then in a bucket of water, and then I have my um, I have some raised beds that I can just sort of temporarily put them in nice. until until it is time to put them in the ground. So. Anyway, so that's that's uh, that's that's my gardening garden talk for today. If they die and turn black, just do a haunted mansion themed something. Oh yeah, oh, that would be a shame <laughs> considering how much I they know. are. <laughs> I'm kidding; it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, I hope not. So. Well, when I was on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, I started a series titled "Windows on Main Street." in which I would talk about those who were honored with a window on Main Street or elsewhere in the parks, as because this tradition expanded beyond Main Street in some of the Disney parks. And the rebroadcast we did of the Rolly Crump interview last week was part of that uh, Windows on Main Street series. So I thought, hey, maybe it's time to bring that back. Because actually, I'd forgotten that I'd ever done that series. So... Most of those windows honor those who made significant contributions to the parks, with the exception of Disneyland Paris, whose windows also bear the names of characters from Disney films and television shows. The names usually appear as fictional business people and may reflect their contribution to the park or their hobbies or other interests. And Marty Sklar once said, to add a name on a window today, there are three requirements. Only on retirement, only for the highest level of service, respect, or achievement, and on agreement between top individual park management and Walt Disney Imagineering, which creates the design and copy concepts of the text. So in honor of Women's History Month, I'm continuing this series with a look at some of the women of Disney who are honored with windows on Main Street. So, and I I think a lot of these will be familiar to all of our guests and listeners to the show. I also have a question. Do you know if, how? and I really don't know this, how different 
the windows are for Walt Disney World as opposed to Disneyland, or are they a carbon copy? No, they are different. There are some people that are the same, but uh, but a lot of times they're different because different people contributed. Okay, so park specific. You'll have somebody yes. that contributed, okay, to one park. But another. some did contribute to both parks, and they will have sure. windows in both parks. So, okay. All right. So, well, we're going to start out with, uh, with one that we talked about a lot a few episodes back, and that is Mary Blair. And Mary Blair, this, we're going to talk about her window. It's in the Magic Kingdom. So, so it is over in your park, John. It is on Center Street. And it is, uh, and her window inscription is, she actually shares the window. Um, it's entitled Painting and Sculpture. And it lists Colin Campbell, Herbert Ryman, Blaine Gibson, Mary Blair, Dorothea Red and Dorothea Redman, who we'll be talking about in just a moment. So, um, and they made contributions to actually Disneyland as well as Walt Disney World and other parks as well. So Mary Robinson Blair trained at the Chouinard Art Institute of Los Angeles during the Depression. And we know it today as CalArts. And with her husband, Lee Blair, um, she was a member of the important California Regionalist School of Watercolor of the 1930s. And Disney historian John Canemaker said of her work, beneath her deceptively simple style lies enormous visual sophistication and craftsmanship in everything from color choices to composition. She was one of Walt Disney's favorite artists. He personally responded to her use of color, naive graphics, and the storytelling aspects in her pictures, especially the underlying emotions in much of her art. And Walt Disney said that Blair knew about colors he had never heard of before. So, and I know I read uh, another person who said like Mary Blair would put different shades of red next to each other. And they said, who does that? You know, (laughs) only Mary Blair would do that. So she joined the Walt Disney company in 1940, where she created concept paintings for the projects related to Fantasia in 1940, Dumbo in 1941 and Lady and the Tramp in 1955. And along with her husband, Lee Blair, who also worked for Walt Disney at this time, she accompanied Walt Disney and several of his artists on a South American tour in 1941, where she honed what would become her distinctive style. And of course, this group is better known as El Grupo. Ah. So upon their return, Blair created concept art that ended up being used for films inspired by the trip, including Saludos Amigos in 1942 and The Three Caballeros in 1944. And her distinct um, use of vivid colors from gouache and tempera to create swirling, um, highly imaginative images influenced many of Walt Disney feature films of the 1940s and 50s. And so her unique designs led Walt Disney to assign her work on the film Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart in 1948, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949, Cinderella in 1950, and Alice of Wonderland in 1951, and Peter Pan in 1953. And she also contributed to cartoon shorts, including The Little House and Susie the Little Blue Coop. 
And, uh, and some of her uh, concept art is on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And it is just spectacular. So I remember being a child of about six years old, maybe five, at Disney World. And my father did make mention of It's a Small World. And then when we went through the contemporary, seeing that huge piece of art in the middle, uh, that that was the same artist. And I remember even as a young age thinking, you know, okay, I see a, I see a connection here between the styles. I mean, maybe I became aware of it as I got older, but I just remember that she was the first thought of art in my head as a young person. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this, there's a person who has a style that is specific that you could even watch the beginning of Cinderella and say, Oh, that looks like it's Mary Blair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but, um, Mary, yeah. And like you said, Mary Blair had a major influence on the studio's animation style, but she faced challenges. So despite having the respect of Walt Disney, her other supervisors would dismiss her work as overly abstract and too colorful. So Walt Disney was frustrated that her concepts and designs did not make it into his films. And he made his frustration known, which caused resentment from some of her male colleagues. I can absolutely see that happening based on, you know, you first look at it on the surface and it looks like, all right, this is what a child made. But then you can realize the thought that went into it that you're not fully aware of because it's just a pretty little picture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I get what's going that yeah. they could quickly dismiss it. Yeah, and and her style is very is very complex in a lot of ways. There's many layers to it. But then you can also see when you see her concept art, and then you see the finished film, and you're wondering, okay, where some of this got lost in the translation. Yes, and and you see more of it in 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 Alice in Wonderland because that was sort of when when. Walt really put his foot down and said, okay, he wants her to have more control over what's in that film, how the film looks. So Mary Blair left the Walt Disney Studio in 1953 to concentrate on illustrating children's books and raising a family. She painted images for a series of little golden books, of which her most popular was titled I Can Fly, and it was illustrated by Blair with text by Ruth Krauss. In 1963, Walt Disney asked Mary Blair to work on Disney's contribution to the 1964 World's Fair in New York, and her concept art on this project would be her final major design for Walt Disney Productions, the It's a Small World attraction for the 1963-64 New York World's Fair. And it was so popular that it was transported to Disneyland after the fair and recreated at Walt Disney World and at most of the international parks. And we went into the whole history of that attraction just a few episodes back. So if you haven't listened to that one, you'd want to go back and you'll hear a whole lot about Mary Blair. In, in that episode. Mary contributed to the design of many exhibits, attractions, and murals for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. In 1966, philanthropist, philanthropist Dr. Jules Stein hired Walt Disney to create a ceramic mural for his newly opened Eye Institute at the University of California, Los Angeles. So Mary Blair designed the mural for Dr. Stein's pediatric surgery waiting room. And the theme Walt chose for the mural was the It's a Small World. 
1967, Blair created the mural art for the Tomorrowland Promenade. Two similar tile murals flank the entrance corridor. The mural over Adventure Through Inner Space was covered over in 1987 with the opening of Star Tours, whilst the other remained in place until 1998 when the Circle Vision 360 was replaced by Rocket Rots and a new mural was designed to reflect the new theme. Uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum used to have a um, display of the mural at Dr. Stein's um, surgery, pediatric surgery waiting room in her lower lobby. And it was magnificent. And then they even had some of the tiles from it that Mary Blair had created as sort of a test design and then um, didn't make it into the final, final one. But they've removed um, that display um, for now. And of course, everybody misses the um, Tomorrowland murals. Now, rumor is they're covered up. And that they could return. be uncovered. So, but there's apparently been some damage to them, um, and when they put up the other ones, but you know, damage can be repaired. They can repair it. So, um, so I, don't, I think we're all hoping if they ever redo Tomorrowland that they would uncover those murals and restore that them. That would be awesome. Yeah. And as you already mentioned, John, her 90-foot-high mural in the Grand Canyon Concourse of Walt Disney World's Contemporary Resort Hotel debuted with the resort in 1971 and still remains a focal point there, even though they filled that whole concourse with shops and restaurants. And it's still, that. you know, it still brings warmth to that lobby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's amazing to think, too, that they're building the Contemporary Resort. It's mostly concrete, you know, hard lines. And someone said we need Mary Blair in here just to give it that it's still contemporary, it's still modern, but we're bringing in that childlike warmth, I guess, mm-hmm. that innocence into the yeah. to the concourse. I like it. Uh, it's, like it's odd. With, yeah. What I like with the – when they, they recently refurbished it, how they brought in, you know, more of her concept art – in the lobby for the hotel and even some of the art that she had purchased to hang in the, in the contemporary, it's sort of off to the side, but I mean, there's like a Picasso in there, I believe in a, <laughs> and, and other things that she just um, thought would complement the modern decor and that they, they brought that out of the archives and hung it in there, which was a nice touch um, to that. And Mary Blair was named a Disney legend in 1991. So, so how do you feel? What, what do you feel has been her impact on the past? Oh, gosh, I, I think it's immeasurable. I mean, just the, it's a small world alone. And then the, you know, the things that come out of that, mm-hmm. it's, it's immeasurable. I don't think she should be sharing a window. I think she should have her own. I, I agree. I was surprised she was sharing a window with so many people. Right? Yeah. 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 And when you think about two people say, oh, well, she just did the one attraction. When you think about, though, that she worked on films that inspired other attractions also at Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's people today that are copying her style. Oh, absolutely. Devil. She inspired all kinds yeah. of artists and animators. And she she really, a few years ago, she uh, enjoyed a resurgence, or her artwork enjoyed a resurgence. It was like she was almost rediscovered amongst the younger animators. 
and and artists and books were published about her the the Walt Disney Family Museum did an uh, uh, exhibition on her work um my granddaughter who is maybe about i don't know 10 or so we went to a a talk on Mary Blair and it was about a about her artwork and it was about and it was about a book that was created for children about Mary Blair and my my granddaughter was mesmerized by it that's and great. That's so I, still- yeah, I think she's a good. There, there's a couple good books about Mary Blair as a child that are drawn in her style, and um, and uh, I, I think she's a good introduction in art for children. If you want to start introducing children to artists and to creativity, and that because Mary Blair didn't follow, she followed her own rules. And followed her own creativity. And uh, I, I think she's a good entry point for, for children and learning about art. So anyway, well, someone else who shared a window uh, with her on Center Street there is Dorothea Redman. And I think people at Disneyland probably know her a little better. But she has a fascinating past. Um, Dorothea Holt Redmond produced scenic designs for Alfred Hitchcock that visualized the director's appetite for suspense with uncanny precision. After studying architecture and interior design at the University of Southern California, Redmond began collaborating with Hitchcock shortly after she became the first woman to join the ranks of Hollywood production designers in 1938. And she contributed to several Hitchcock classics, including Rebecca, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief. Hitch was very fond of my mother because she used light and shadow to create moods with her layouts, said her son, filmmaker Lee Redman. Said very few people painted that way. So have you seen those films? I saw Rear Window, and I do remember some sort of a silhouette type of ad for it. So that might be what Dorothea yeah, did. That is one of my favorite films. I like yes. Jimmy Stewart. So he's, Me too. But, but I've seen all of these films, and they're all among Hitchcock's best. And um, a, a, anyway, but uh, yeah, but it's, it's interesting that she worked on those. And she worked on Gone with the Wind. And her son said that she weathered considerable workplace resentment. Um, According to her son, he said it was really difficult when she started out in the motion pictures because my mother didn't take crap from anybody. And he said she'd walk into male-dominated places and deal with all these snide comments because she was better than anyone else in the room. Good for her. This is something I found surprising. When she worked at the Selznick studio, David Selznick studio, the, her male counterparts were so put off by, ha- by having to work with a woman, they made sh- they, they had walls put up all around her workspace so that they wouldn't have to see her. What is wrong with us Isn't as a that species? Shocking? That's crazy. Well, of course, this is the 1930s. So, you yeah. know, but isn't that shocking? Shocking to do, to be that bold. Yeah. 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 I could see you saying, you know, they didn't, they didn't like her too much, but to put up walls, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Among the more than 30 films she worked on are classics like Gone with the Wind in 1939, The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, and The Ten Commandments in 1956. I mean, these are Academy Award-winning films. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty impressive. After 10 years of working with an architectural design firm, on projects like Seattle's Space Needle. Wow. She was tired of working weekends to meet Monday deadlines. So in 1964, she joined Wed Enterprises. Of course, we know it today as Walt Disney Imagineering to help with designing some areas of Disneyland as it approached its 10th anniversary. So when she started out, she designed Disneyland's ornate New Orleans Square and the Plaza Inn Restaurant and conceived the Archway Mural for Walt Disney World's Cinderella Castle, constructed to her exact specification from a million pieces of colored glass. And Marty Sklar described Dorothy as a brilliant watercolorist whose work was so immersive that we immediately believed we had already visited these magic places. Now, at Disneyland, she delivered luminous renderings of the Blue Bayou Restaurant within Pirates of the Caribbean. She completed Glendora von Kessel's intricate mirror panel paintings for Mademoiselle Antoinette's parfumerie shop, and even created concept art for what would later become the famed and very exclusive Clubs 33. So, now, did you go into the parfumerie shop in New Orleans Square when you were there? No. We didn't have enough time. I, I never have enough time in Disneyland. I know. When you go in there, it, uh, Glenda, Glenda von Kessel, she did these, and, and thank goodness they've kept these. There were the, there are these wonderful mirror paintings where, uh, of flowers, like roses and things, but they're done on the backs of the mirrors. I think I've seen that. And, that and very painted on there. It's, it's apparently it's a lost art form. And and they're all around the shop, and they're gorgeous. And the shop just has a lot of mirrors in it, and it you really do feel like you're walking back in time, like you're in a French shop. That's great. And so you definitely, I'll, I'll go there just to look at the, um, you know, at those mirrors. But do we know if any of her Blue it? Bayou renderings made it? Because I ate there, and I was very impressed. With that whole space. It was very close. Yeah. What what okay. she would create almost always was created exactly. So um, it, it was very impressive. So in one of more one of her more ambitious assignments, she worked with art directors Bill Martin, Bob Brown, and Walt Disney to design the lavish interiors for Walt and Roy's new apartment which was to be placed, of course, as we know, the heart of New Orleans Square above Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, Walt passed away before the project could be completed, and Roy sort of lost interest in it, lost heart in the project. So Redmond's plans, uh, so though it was never finished, but Redmond's plans were finally realized with the opening of the extremely opulent Disney Dream Suite in 2008, and it included every gilded mirror, marble fireplace, and floor-to-ceiling draped window she conceptualized, and even had some of her concept art for the Dream Suite hanging in there as artwork. Um, Now, today, the Dream Suite includes a dining experience named 21 Royal that is incredibly expensive. 
I think it went from like fifteen thousand to seventeen thousand oh. dollars, and and um, apparently it is though quite an experience. I can't even afford the tip. <laughs> no, you do get a couple of gifts, I believe. I hope. <laughs> now, um, so Dorothea Redman went on to work on the development of Walt Disney World and painted scenes depicting various architectural styles for Epcot Center's World Showcase and Magic Kingdom's Main Street USA, Adventureland, and Fantasyland. Now, Fantasyland was of particular interest to Redmond, who decorated the Cinderella Castle entryways I mentioned to Fantasyland. And in my, in, in some of the early episodes of Connecting Swap, when we talk about the history of the Magic Kingdom, I go into great detail on the creation of these murals. But, um, that, but there are five ornate mosaic murals that tell the story of the princess. They're, they're more in a style of, um, they they don't have they're not based on illustrations or art from the film they're her own creations and the first mural depicts lady tremaine surveying the royal invitation to the prince's ball with drizella and anastasia close behind her and cinderella sweeping the hearth behind them and then in the second mural the fairy godmother gazes upon cinderella who's now transformed from the family servant into a regal silver-gowned princess, not blue. In the third and fourth murals, they take us to the scenes where Cinderella flees the ball and drops her glass slipper. And then in another scene, it's returned to her and she is identified as Prince Charming's true love. And then in the final mural, Cinderella and her prince ride happily away together to live happily ever after. These murals make me so happy. I, I mean, you just are in awe of the time and tediousness that it had to take, you know, and how do you realize what it will look like when it's done? I mean, they didn't have computers, I, you know, like we no, do now. No, no. And that's why I go into it in a lot of detail, how they translated these from her, her art, her concept art to these huge murals. And I have it to go was back. amazing. Just amazing. I, but I have to find that show. I every time I go to the Magic Kingdom, I spend time in that breezeway, that entryway, looking at these murals and studying them. And I always see something new. I'll see a little bunny or I'll I'll yep. see something in yep. there. But it's just they're so beautiful. And and I always think what other park would do this? You know, you and know? then when you know when you visit the Riviera, there are two murals there that are very similar. Mm-hmm. That go, you know, the archways. You've seen those, I think. Yes, I have. Yeah, I'm. Sh- I'm so glad they're still doing it, even on the cruise ships. They're still. I, I'm. Sh- I, I, as far as I know, the process is still the same. Yeah. Somebody sits there and cuts tiles, mm-hmm. in little pieces, and puts them together. Yeah, yeah. Now mosaicist Han Joachim Sharif. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name. That correctly. sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> he led a team, a select team of craftsmen, and he's the one that brought Redmond's original paintings to life. Each of the five murals were carefully constructed within the Gothic archway. They were assembled from over a million pieces of smalty tiles, Venetian wow. glass, silver, and 14 karat gold. 
Within the 18-month installation process was finally complete. The mural stood 15 feet high and 10 feet wide and featured over 500 different colors. And then these were replicated in 1983 when Tokyo Disneyland debuted their own slightly smaller version of Cinderella Castle. Mm. So very impressive. So. Now, in so in Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, and Epcot, Dorothea Redmond's presence continues. And Dorothea Redmond was named a Disney legend in 2008. So she is, so people, I, I think Disneylanders know her well, but I, I think a lot of people, well, Disney World don't realize her contribution, her significant nope. contribution to both, um, both to the Magic Kingdom and Epcot. I admittedly designs. didn't even know her name until we did the show. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, very impressive woman. And and if you ever see her concept art for like Adventureland and Fantasyland, it, it, it's really, really impressive. Her, especially her, her artwork for Fantasyland, it was very moody in terms of the colors and things. I mean, she was really setting a tone for fantasy land in a lot of ways. And um, I'm really curious what she did for Epcot. I got to look that up the next time. I yeah. Visit. It was, it, it's a lot of the concept art just for like the world showcase pavilions and things like that. So, um, yeah. Okay. Now here's one that a lot of people know. Next one we're talking about is Harriet Burns. Now her windows at Disneyland and it's when you read the inscription on it, it says the artist Harriet Burns, the artisan's loft, handmade miniatures by Harriet Burns. And it's above the Carriage Place um, Clothing Company on Main Street. Now, Harriet Burns was featured on my Windows on Main Street series when I interviewed her daughter, Pam Burns Claire. And that was a, a funny interview because I think I told Pam things about her mother she'd never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun, that interview. And 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 Pam Burns Claire is the nicest, nicest lady. So she had a lot of great memories uh, of um, funny memories of her mother bringing work home oh, and, gosh. and all that. Um, so Harriet Burns was the first woman hired by Wed Enterprises in a creative capacity. Some women had been hired in like um, clerical roles, but she was the first one in a creative capacity. So she helped design uh, and prototype and build theme park attractions featured at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and New York World's Fair, 1964-65. And whilst she worked shoulder to shoulder with men in the model shop, wielding saws, lathes, and sanders, she was still the best-dressed employee in the department. And Walt would frequently feature her on his television show. So if you, um, John, if you ever see the re of, of Walt when he's showing like behind the scenes things, yeah. like the, the, especially the one where the, he was showing off the Tiki birds and the haunted mansion. I remember with, that. With Rolly yep. Crump and all that. Um, she's, and he speaks to her, but she's the woman and she, her hair is up like in a, sort of like a beehive it's swept up and then okay. and she's in the i think she's in like a one-piece dress and she has the little um 
scarf around her neck. Yep. And you always see a picture of her dressed like that, putting feathers on the tiki birds and things like, and things like that. So she, um, because she dressed so nicely, Walt always featured her on his show. I feel like I met Harriet Burns. Do you know what year she passed? Um, Was it, was it like, 2000 something like the early 2000s i you know i don't recall i know i looked it up but uh. I, I met a lady one special night when there was a 999 happy haunts mm-hmm. uh it probably was the year 2001 and she had worked with walt disney and she was talking about the tiki birds and i think it was harriet burns i'm gonna go check that out because i may have met this lady i'm i'm looking it up right now okay yeah she because- was it was in pecos bill that I met her and she, I... Uh, oh, she passed in 2008. So you may very well uh, have That her. was her. Yes. That was her. That was her. And very... She told me about working with Mr. Disney and I was thrilled. I was I was soaking it all up as well, she spoke. I would have loved to have met her. How wonderful. So um, now her first job in Los Angeles was at Dice Display Industries Cooperative Exchange, and she designed props and sets for television shows, including the Colgate Comedy Hour, as well as interiors and sets for floor shows and hotels in Las Vegas, including the Dunes, which was a big hotel at the time. Yep. She also worked at a theme park in Lake Arrowhead, California, that was called Santa's Village in the mid-1950s. We had one up in Santa Cruz as well. And this was a, a little theme park, and it and that it's where Santa Claus hung out the rest like of that. the year. And you met him, and they it, it was a lot of fun um, that, that park. So when the theme park closed, a friend suggested Burns apply for pos- open positions at the Walt Disney Studio. So Burns began working at the studio in 1955 as a prop and set painter for the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, She helped to design and build the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which was a featured set on the show. Her appearance caused her to stand out on the set because, like I mentioned, she would dress in high heels and a skirt to work with the hardware and tools, such as the drill press and sanders. But she always had in her bag a pair of slacks in case she needed to climb ladders. Burns shared a workstation at the Disney studio with a fellow Disney employee, Fred Jerger. Jerger was a model builder for Wet Enterprises, and he was working on prototype models for the future Disneyland theme park. So in addition to her job as a set builder, Burns began working with Jerger in Disney's model shop, building miniature prototypes of Disneyland buildings and attractions. So WED Enterprises originally consisted of just three members, Harriet Burns, Fred Cherker, and Wethel Rogers, and it became known as the WED Model Shop. So I think one of the things in one of the shows she's featured, um, she helped build the model of the Plaza Inn restaurant that Dorothea Redmond designed, and she's featured in there with the model of the, um, on the show of the, of the restaurant. One of Burns' first assignments was to create a model of Disneyland's Sleeping Beauty Castle, and she continued to work on Disneyland expansions after the park's grand opening. So she designed models of the Matterhorn bobsleds attraction as a 1-100 scale replica of the famous Matterhorn in Switzerland. She also created many of the miniature building el- buildings and elements for the Storybook Land canal boats. And I know like her daughter talked about just all of the all of the um, 
chemicals and paints and they used real lead and every <laughs> and so many things that are banned today. And they used them and they didn't wear masks or anything, you know, in, in using these things. And and they died at 103. So yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them lived very normal lives, but they gave, she gave, uh, she's the one that uh, is reported reported to have given Walt Disney his nickname of of Yellow Shoes, Mr. Yellow Shoes. Oh. That was the warning that he was coming because she told the story. And, and um, I think this was one of the stories I shared with her daughter. Uh, when Harriet Burns was working on a stained glass window for I think it was for one of the scenes. I think it was like a church, uh, the church that's in Storybookland Canal Boats. I think it might be. In, I don't know if it's in Geppetto's, um, the Geppetto's uh, village scene. Um, she had it all laid out, and then Walt comes in, and well, she had not yet attached anything it was just laid out and so walt comes in and he's so excited it's so beautiful and gorgeous and and they used real glass you know these are real stained glass this right, is right, real right. stained glass in there well he wanted to hold it up to the light well he held it up and it all just fell apart <gasps> because she hadn't started whatever <sighs> you do to attach the yeah the soldering to the and lead stuff. soldering yeah. yeah she hadn't started that yet and so that's when that whole code word started. So that they knew if there was anything they didn't want Walt to touch, they would put <laughs> it away. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. The boss is destroying our things. Yeah, yeah. Another of Burns' job at Disneyland was what was called figure finishing. And figure finishing involves applying paint and other finishes to Disneyland attractions and mannequins to create a finished look. So Burns personally designed and painted the set pieces and underwater figures for the submarine voyage ride. She applied individual feathers to the animatronic birds in Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, which opened in 1963. And she later stated in a 2005 interview with The Hollywood Reporter that the Tiki Birds were one of her most challenging projects ever. And she said, when they breathed out, it would be fine. But when they came back, they scrunched. They looked like they had mites. <laughs> she managed to fix the look of the birds and actively maintain the Tiki Room attraction after its opening. And do you know how she fixed it? What inspired her to fix the birds so that when they breathed and all that? Because Walt Disney wanted them to breathe. That was a big, and that was like a big thing. He had a big discussion with his, with his um, Imagineers on that because they said, nobody's going to notice their breathing. And Walt said, yes, you will. Even if you're not looking at them, it's going to register with you and then you're going to know they're alive. Well, it was Walt, and, and you see this when you see Walt on the show, he had a blue sweater that he loved to wear. And so she, he was visiting the model shop one day and she was noticing these picking things up and all that, that the sweater in this elbow, it would move and it didn't bunch up and it kept its form as Walt moved his arm. And so she figured out what that material was that his sweater was made out of. And that's what she used for the Tiki Birds. 
like a stretchy lycra or something yeah, like that? Yeah, something, yeah. Ah, okay. I do notice the birds breathing. And this definitely was the lady I met because she told me about applying the feathers one by one. Yep, that was her. You met Harriet Burns. How I wonderful. I can't believe I did not know that until, and it was yeah. many years ago. Yeah. And she also created the birds for Mary Poppins. That bird that Mary Poppins sings to in the playroom yeah, yeah. scene, the robin, that Harriet Burns put that help put that bird together. The feathers on that, that bird is, Wonder where that prop is today. They still have it. They've displayed they? it at, at in exhibits. That's great. Yeah. So. Burns also helped with the models and final designs of New Orleans Square. She also designed the attractions within New Orleans Square. She built an exact model of the entire Pirates of the Caribbean Dark Ride, which opened in 1967. Of course, she was one of of the designers on there, but she built the model. And she was also the figure finisher on the pirate um, mannequins, the end of the the, – the figures there. She also did similar work on the Haunted Mansion, which opened in um, 1969. So now outside of Disneyland, Burns was part of a team of Disney employees who created several Disney attractions for the 1964 New York World's Fair. Burns worked on designing Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, which later opened at Disneyland. And she also worked on the Carousel of Progress. So Harriet Burns retired from Imagineering in 1986 and was named a Disney legend in 2000. So Leslie Iwerks, who we know, she's the accomplished producer and daughter of Disney legend Don Iwerks. We've enjoyed her shows on Disney Plus, her series. She's great. And she, what she said about Harriet Burns was, for a woman in the man's world, she was always held high, held in high regard and was a magnetic force that drew people together. So, so what struck you about Harriet Burns when you met her? She was, she reminded me of the lady, I forgot her name off the top of my head. And when you say it, I'm going to forget the lady who plays Tinkerbell. She reminded me of oh, Margaret Carey. Yes. She figure, reminded me of Mar- the model yes. for her. And she was so, she knew that, you know, she was there because it was an event and, and she knew that people would want to hear some stories. And I just saw her telling stories. And when it was my turn to kind of get to her, I just remember how magnetic she was, how happy she was that there was still interest in things that she did. And I said, Harriet, the most important thing to me, because she asked me, what do you want to know? And I just said, just tell me something that you did with, uh, with, with Mr. Disney. And she went and talked about how they discussed the feathers, how she applied them. And, you know, I'm surprised it, it didn't stick with me further because I forgot until you're doing this. I, um, uh, I sat there and just tried to soak it all in and I, I could have kept her for hours and I knew there were more people that she had to speak to for this event. So I just hugged her and got up. But wonderful, wonderful lady. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and some of the stories I've heard about her, like, you know, she built, you know, there was a, um, for far to story bookland canal boats, Walt had wanted a big rock candy mountain theme, you know, a, a thing that a thing that the train would go through, boats would go through, that you know, Casey Junior Circus train would go around and all that. And inside, there was going to be a whole Wizard of Oz um, mm. sort of scene and scenes in there, and um, and the model for that is. Uh, 
they've recreated the model and it's actually in California Adventure on Buena Vista Street in the window of the candy shop wow. there. You can see it. But they, they they built this big, huge model and it was and they used real candy. And then and so the the her mother would bring candy home and 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 um sugar rock um rock candy and all that and they so when when Walt finally thought okay this this isn't going to work um they threw the model out and then and then for the birds the birds <laughs> ate a lot of it but she brought home some of the rock candy and they made Christmas ornaments out of it oh. and that they still have for their Christmas tree. Today. I would get scared of bugs. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but like she, like she had a, she would have boxes of things that she made, like um, hands from like um, Pirates of the Caribbean and Great Moments with Mister Lincoln and all that. So then her daughter said, so we would use them like at Halloween as part of our <laughs> costumes or put them in places to scare people. You know, and stuff. So it was just funny hearing, you know, how, you know, she'd bring work home and how the kids would play with That's this great. stuff. So anyway, okay. Yeah, the, this- the, the big, the big standout though, just so you know, she couldn't believe that people still had interest in something she did, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. And it was so much interest. She was overwhelmed and that, that gave her so much joy. And she always, she came across to me as, a true lady, you know, in, in the old definition of the word, yeah, lady 100%. in terms of grace and manners and style. Yeah. yeah, she was also beautifully dressed. I remember that. Oh, she always was. Always yeah, was. impeccable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I envy you that you got to meet her. So. It was a weird chance thing that she happened to be there. Yeah. All right. Well, the next one. This is somebody in in your side uh, of uh, the kingdom here, uh, Mae Crofton. She uh, a bit divisive, um, but her windows at the Magic Kingdom, of course. Um, and what it's her window is entitled Center for Leadership Development and Mentoring, Meg Gilbert Crofton. And in quotations, it says, we start leaders on their journeys. And this is over the Emporium on the corner of Main Street and Center Street, the Magic Kingdom. Now, Meg Gilbert Crofton made history as the first female president of Disney Parks and Resorts Division. And this was a job that made her responsible for the Walt Disney World Resort, Disneyland Resort, and Disneyland Paris. Now, throughout her career, um, Crofton held many executive positions in both operational and functional areas, as well as key leadership roles in the openings of many domestic and international properties. In her last role, she was responsible for the operations of the company's theme parks and resorts in Florida, California, and France, and led a workforce of over 100,000. In addition, she led the global division's functional lines of business, which included food and beverage, merchandise, hotel and park operations, facilities and maintenance, safety, and security. Prior to this, Meg served as the fourth president of the Walt Disney World Resort, During her tenure, she led the largest expansion in the history of the Magic Kingdom Park, launched the expansion and rebranding of the property's retail, 
Dining and Entertainment Complex was at the forefront of the award-winning My Magic Plus um, technology initiative aimed at transforming the guest experience. Before her time as an executive, she worked as director of Walt Disney World's Human Resources Department. And here she watched over all parks at the resort. Prior to that, she began her role within um, sales operations. And she retired from the Walt Disney Company on June 1st, um, 2015. Um, there's not a lot I can say about her. <laughs> but, but you know why? It's not your fault. She wasn't in the creative roles that we experience, you know, with costume and art design. She was a leader. And, and that, while that does, of course, have its own creative challenges, we're not really aware of what, you know, I'm not aware of what she did. I remember that I, I thought it was good that she was there at the time. Like I remember the name Meg Crofton brings a positive response from me. I don't know why though. I think you're in the minority. Okay. Yeah. I probably am because I'm not aware. Yeah. Um, the, I, she, what struck me, okay, listening to our, our, our Orlando show, um, Pete Werner, who is, of course, our boss, um, he didn't have a lot of positive things to say about her. I'm not going to go into it, nor what he called her, <laughs> but yeah, I did but you know share it with you. Yeah. Um, he and just, and, and I, I, I remember when she got promoted, um, people that visited Walt Disney world guests were not happy. Okay. She, uh, it struck me that she was, our Paul Pressler at Disneyland where, and I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's go, we're going way back with him, but he, um, he was somebody that focused on retail for every attraction closed. Two or three shops would be opened. Um, The park fell into disrepair to it. Literally there was dry rot on the haunted mansion. Um, Somebody was killed due to improper maintenance on the Columbia sailing ship. Um, there were all kinds of things wrong with the park. And that was under the Paul Pressler regime. And I got the, I've gotten the impression Meg Crofton was looked at in that way. And I might be wrong. I can no, only you're probably right. really on what I was hearing on our Orlando show. And from people who went to Walt Disney World. I think it's important to remember that Pete has a very unique, uh, you know, his his whole job with the Dreams Unlimited Travel and everything. Mm -hmm. He was able to see stuff that a lot of other people didn't see. So I'm sure that that's where his his comments come from somewhere that he saw changes that he just didn't like. Yeah. And I think- Just like with JPEG. Oh, Yes. And I think that's when he was so happy when, you know, like Josh DeMauro came along yep. and Bob Iker and, and, you know, folks like that came along and sort of turned things around a bit. So anyway, so yeah, so I did not have a lot of experience with her, nor did I experience maybe um, the effects of her leadership. Now, when I was researching her, what I saw in a lot of sites, people praising her mentorship that she apparently really took people under her wing and provided guidance. And, uh, and that's on different sites for like different companies. She sits on different boards, all of them unanimously 
talked about her role as a mentor. So, and, and sometimes just because you're a good mentor does not mean you're a great leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That, that can be very true. So, so that's Meg Crofton. So you can look for her window there. Okay, and Alice Davis. Um, she is uh, her window. It's a small world costume company, Alice Davis, Seamstress to the Stars. This is above the Disneyana shop at Disneyland in Town Square. She um, shares this window actually with her husband, Mark Davis. And she passed away after we went on hiatus in November. So I never had a chance to do an obituary for her. So this is sort of my obituary for Alice Davis that I didn't get a chance to do. It literally was the week we signed off because we signed off early because little Rory Williams or, or Kermit, uh, as I call him, he um, was being born. Oh, <laughs> so, he is anyway. so cute. Yeah. I have, I've only seen him on his Instagram site. So, but anyway, but Alice Davis was a costume designer who dressed some of Disney parks, most recognizable animatronic figures. She was born Alice Estes. And she showed great artistic talent in high school and received a scholarship to study at the Chouinard Art Institute, or CalArts as today. Though she she had wanted to study animation at the end of World War II, and because of the flood of GI Bill students, there was was a two-year waiting list. For that, for those courses. So the only course with an open seat for the semester was a, in costume design. But she did get permission to attend a night class in animation, which happened to be taught by Mark Davis. Oh my. And so he gave her permission to attend it, but he, he said there were two, th- two prerequisites she had to meet. She had to take attendance in class for him, and she always had to make sure there was chalk. Wow. (laughs) So after graduation, Davis took a job designing for Beverly Vogue and Lingerie House in Los Angeles. And her skill quickly earned her respect and reputation in the industry, as well as two lines of fashion lingerie that she designed herself. Um, Her life with Disney began when Mark called her in the mid-1950s, saying he needed a costume for dancer Helene Stanley to wear for the live-action reference footage for Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. So the former teacher and student grew close, and they married in 1956. And Alice Davis, because I've seen her and I've I've met her several times, and, and... you know, at Disney events at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And I've gotten a chance to talk to her in person a few times. And she made it very clear they did not date until after she graduated. And there was no hanky-panky before they were married. She's so funny. Um, A year later, um, she met Walt Disney whilst out for dinner with Mark. And they had a 30-minute conversation and, and Walt Disney told Alice, you know, you're going to work for me someday. And Alice didn't believe Walt at first, but she made an impression on him. So Walt hired her as a costume designer for the live action 1960 feature film, Toby Tyler. 
Well, she created costumes for Walt's television anthology series. And then in 1963, Walt assigned her to assist his favorite artist, Mary Blair, in designing the audio animatronic children for the company's New York World's Fair attraction, It's a Small World. So she researched cultures all over the world and translated them into 150 different costumes. And simultaneously, she costumed the children in General Electric's fair attraction carousel of progress. So whilst working on the Small World Project, Alice developed an AA figure costume manufacturing area, quality control system, and refurbishing techniques at WED Enterprises. And all of these systems continue to be used by Imagineers and the maintenance staff of the Disney theme parks today. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's really saying something. Yeah. In 1965, Alice Davis, uh, and this is a quote from her, went from sweet little children to dirty old men overnight, she once remarked. Walt had assigned her to create the seaworthy threads for the audio animatronics in Pirates of the Caribbean. And that meant 47 different costumes that put a Disney flair on 17th and 18th century fashions for those pirates. In the same year, she costumed the mission control characters for the reimagined Flight to the Moon attraction. Wow, what a difference between Pirates of the Caribbean and the uh, mission control. So she's coming big... after those sweet little children. Yeah. With all the frilly dresses and everything. Yep. So, known for her eye for detail and her sense of humor, when she noticed that the plastic skin of the dancing girls tended to tear, she covered them with knickers. So when Walt saw the change, he shouted up a ladder at Alice, how come you put pantaloons on the can-can girls? <laughs> pantaloons. And, yeah. and she said, you told me you wanted this to be a family show. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. So Alice followed her husband into retirement in 1978, but continued to consult on Disney projects. This surprised me, including Pixar's Up, which is partially dedicated to her. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Alice recalled her career as an Imagineer at Wet Enterprises as the best job I ever had because there were no hierarchical distinctions. And she continued, everybody had a job to do. None of us had titles. We all went by first name, she said, per Walt Disney. And we all worked for the same thing, putting on the best show possible. We'd be at work before we had to be and would stay as long as we had to. Alice Davis was named a Disney legend in 2004 and has left an indelible impact on Disney theme parks. So, um, so what, what do you think of her? How does her work you know, um, impact? I, I, ha- I mean, well, the first thought I have is when I see some of the female stuff that Mark Davis did was, did his wife help him a little bit? Because he just seemed to have a good connection to female characters he did you know it's just i just have a feeling she she was instrumental there even though we don't know about it too much Mm -hmm. but wow yeah i really didn't know much about her until this Mm -hmm. um she was another name where the husband is the one i always heard about 
growing up. I really didn't hear about Alice so much. Yeah, but you know, she was a talented artist in her own right. Very. Very creative. Well, all of these women that we talked about today broke barriers as they worked to create Walt's vision and carry on his legacy. Their talent, spirit, and contributions continue to inspire today's generation and those to come. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Okay, I think it's my turn this week, because I think you you started last week, if I'm correct All right. in that. You you get to go now. Okay. All right. Well, mine is March 27th, 1999. We all know that Walt's favorite attraction was trains. And that that sort of yep. led him to, you know, they, they, there was always a joke that uh, Walt built Disneyland as a place to keep his trains. <laughs> so, um, well, on this date, two significant things happened with Disneyland's railroad. The rededication of the E.P. Ripley, Disneyland's Railroad Steam Engine Number 2, took place at Disneyland. This train uh, has been in service since the park's opening day, 1955. This is the train that Walt rode in on in Disneyland in the um, televised opening ceremony. And it was totally restored on this date. And I bring it up because it was just announced this week the E.P. Ripley once again rolled out into the park being restored again. So it's so nice to keep these up. Yeah, you have to see the Magic Kingdom ones. They are gorgeous when they're back. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, when you're at either the Poly, the Grand Floridian, or the Contemporary, and you wake up in the morning and you have a balcony where you can hear, ooh, ooh, Isn't that magic? You just, it's mad. You just want to be part of the fun. Mm-hmm. There's a, I got to get over there. Mm-hmm. And I think my my rendition of the oot oot was the boat. I can't do the train one, but I know it in my head when I hear it. I do too. And the bell. (laughs) And the bell, yeah. yeah. But the fact that they're still steam powered is amazing. And and, and you can't get replacement parts. They have to somehow out of wrought iron refabricate these. There's only like one or two places in the United States that can still do it. But they're keeping it up and I love that. I I do too. Always ride the train. I always, always ride the train when I'm at the parks. It's an attraction in itself, even if oh, it's not it for transportation. It's great. Oh, it is, and well, and at Disneyland, it especially is because it really is a grand circle tour of the park. You do yes. you see the park the whole yeah. way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Magic Kingdom. You really don't. You I, get I don't a know why they didn't do that at the Magic Kingdom. They didn't have more <sighs> scenes. Unless it's because every time they expand, they keep changing it, and maybe it did show stuff in the beginning. I don't. I don't know. think it ever did. Yeah, it's very. It's, you know, it's just like I don't hidden. understand the, the the Liberty Bell going around the rivers of America. That that there's no scenes at Disneyland. It's a whole show. Yeah, and you got chipped. <laughs> yeah, you did on that one, definitely. You did. So uh, now another thing that happened on the same day, March twenty seventh, nineteen ninety nine, um, Disneyland announced that it has acquired a new locomotive, Disneyland. Railroad Engine Number no. Five, which will be dedicated under the name Ward Kimball, in honor of Disney artist and animator um, Ward Kimball. The newly acquired engine is currently undergoing restoration. It says, and we'll have custom paintings of Jiminy Cricket by Ward Kimball on either side of the headlamp. Wow! 
So, um, and that, that runs around Disneyland still to this day. So what do you have for us, John? Well, I picked one that sort of went with the theme of the show as it was a famous lady that did stuff for Disney, even though she doesn't have a window. March 31st, 1929, voice actress Lucille Bliss, known as the Lady of a Thousand Voices, is born in New York City. Her best-known Disney voice is that of Anastasia Tremaine in the 1950s Cinderella's, but she can also be heard in Alice in Wonderland 1951 as a sunflower and tulip, Peter Pan 1953 as a mermaid, 101 Dalmatians 1961 as a TV commercial singer. Uh, also, she was Smurfette on the Smurfs, and she did Flintstone, so many other things, but I love some of the voice acting people for Disney, especially like Eleanor Audley and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but... Lucille Bliss, 1929, Lady of a Thousand Voices. And I didn't realize, I'm so so sorry, I didn't realize how uh, unique Anastasia was until I went and just looked on YouTube and heard some more Anastasia. It is is pretty good. Yeah, Yeah. you have to get the book. We we interviewed the author and I just saw him in Philadelphia a couple weeks ago. Spencer writes, I think, of Voices Behind the Magic. Did the show ah. on him, but he wrote the book, and it's it's exact. You would love it because it is about these Disney voice artists, but they have amazing histories. They live lives that today we would think they're nuts. Yep. They, they lived amazing, crazy lives in their youth because you know a lot of them were born in the eighteen hundreds and or the early nineteen hundreds. It was a different world. Just a different yep. world back then. We, yep. you know, they're on stage when they're fourteen, traveling in vaudeville, and, and, and I mean, amazing. It, it is, is amazing. You would love the book. So, I have to get it. Uh, yeah. You know, something just really the, the, something that interests me, and I'll never forget. I listen to it still all the time. I think it was it. And I have to remember. Was it Eleanor Audley that did uh, Madame Leota, the voice? And she did Lady Tremaine. She did Maleficent. Yes, yes. She did all kinds of voices. You can hear her, not audition, but her recording of Madame Leota. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one, you know, even the end, what is it, Little Leota, where, where she goes, uh, be sure to bring your death certificate. And they said, no, no, uh, Walt wants death certificate to be different. She goes, oh, he doesn't want it like come and get a lollipop? Okay, we'll read it very differently then. And she goes, be sure to bring your death certificate. And she cuts it. And it's so professional. He's like, yep, that's it. Thank you. And it's yeah. just amazing hearing her get direction and alter what she's saying. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then, of course, they used Leota tombs for little Leota. They yes. Used the, yes. For her voice, she had this sweet little voice. Yes. Even yes. though it was her image in yep. the Haunted Mansion in the Crystal Ball, they felt the voice didn't match the image. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, it is. Of course, you know where you hear Eleanor Audley. You can see where, you, where she might be most famous for Green Acres. She was Oliver Wendell oh. Douglas's mother. <laughs> yes, yes. And you can hear. I always hear Lady Tremaine in her. In yes. Her oh, she was one. What was the What was the Clampets? Beverly Hillbillies. Y- yes, she was also in that in a. Uh, an episode and yeah well those shows beverly hillbillies petticoat junction and green acres all lived in the same world that's why i enjoyed them when i was a kid because they would all visit each other's shows oh did they really yeah yeah it was hilarious that's great and um you know and and especially green acres and petticoat junction 
they were always cross referenced, always back and forth. It was probably two walks over from one studio set to the other, uh, and they were in the same town, Hooterville. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> those two shows, and then how the Clampets got involved with them, I'll never know, but uh, but they did. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, that is funny. So good memories, good memories. No, that and you know, don't, I don't know. Are there? You know, the, people made a living doing voice acting back in those days. Are there any modern voice actors that, like you, when you talked about that that one person that she, I mean, she started out way back in the, you know, forties and fifties, and then she's doing Smurfette, which was what seventies, right, or eighties. Yeah, and I'm sure there's people and, still doing that today. And, I, I, I mean, would probably. Are there people that are making movies, or are they doing it maybe in video games? Is yeah, that where that, is that where I voice think, acting actors are making a living? If I had to guess, I would say seventy percent of them do well, but still have to do other work. Mm-hmm. And there's probably thirty percent of them. This is just a guess that are absolutely working all the time. Because mm-hmm. some of them, like uh, I forget the guy's name, but the guy that does like Bender on Futurama, he's somebody I see all the time. His name, and it just escapes me at the moment. But I've seen him do so many things. There's a lot of people that they do so many multiple voices. And yes, video games are a big part of it for some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. I bet there is. Well, I mentioned um, Philadelphia a couple weeks ago. I was in Philadelphia and I saw the exhibit, the you know Disney 100 Years of Wonder at the Franklin Institute. And we are going to talk about it next week. I don't want to spoil anything right now, but we do have some special guests next week. So definitely Ooh. want to tune in for that. But we're going to talk about that exhibit and the book Love that it. accompanies it. And But um, by the time we, this air – oh, and first of all, just to let you know, the exhibit is fantastic. If you have a chance to be in Philadelphia to see it, I would say go. If you have – if it's going to come to a city near you, and I don't know if they've announced all the cities it's going to, definitely make an effort to go. You will not be disappointed. I've gone to so many Disney exhibits, and you know, I was a little worried. I know Craig and I talked about, okay, is this, is this going to be the things that we see at the D23 Expo? Um, no. There, there are a few things like, you know, Mary Poppins carousel horse, that thing's going to make the rounds no matter what, what exhibit. Right, right, right. But it's wonderful seeing it. Um, no, there are some things that I didn't see before. Some things are recreations because that's, it's delicate artwork and you can't be chance. You can't be transporting a lot of that work uh, anymore. It's, it's, you know, when it's, uh, you know, when it's like 80, 90 years old, some of the pieces, you can't. Yeah. And some of the originals are on display, like at the Walt Disney Family Museum and things like that. I've seen the originals. But it is spectacular. Some of the interactive things uh, are really clever. Um, we'll talk about it more next week. But I went in <clears throat> with low expectations. My expect- I was blown out of the water. By That's it. great. Uh, if I lived nearby, I would go again. And oh, there gosh, is the ho- hologram of Walt Disney. We'll get into that next week. I videoed it and I will share it after. I'll share all my photos after the, sh- the episode next week. But I showed it to my 13-year-old granddaughter because I wanted a younger person's opinion and not somebody who grew up with Walt 
who, you know, who met Walt. And, um, and so, um, so I'll share her, what, what a young person thought okay. of seeing a hologram, who's somebody who did not grow up with Walt and what she thought, because those are two different perspectives. Completely. You know, Completely. and I think we react differently as a result of those perspectives. So it was interesting. I'm going to see if I can find out where the exhibit uh, is going. If there's a chance that it would be in Orlando, I doubt it, but that would be amazing. I I don't think California is on the list. Why does nothing come to California? They have all these wonderful exhibits that travel around and they don't go to California. I don't know why. So um, That's weird. Anyway, but, but, this will already have aired by the time this show airs, but you can catch it on Hulu. The Walt Disney Archives, there anyway, they are doing a, a 30-minute special on this exhibit. And it's going to apparently um, be on ABC. Oh, that's uh, great. But they said it's apparently it may not be on all ABC television a television station, so you've got to check. It's on Thursday, March 23rd at um, 7.30 Eastern Time, 4, 4.30 Pacific Time, which is a really weird time. And um, Maybe it'll and go to Disney Plus after that? They said Hulu. It's that's, going that's to be weird. on Hulu of all places, but I would think it would end up on Disney Plus at some point. At some point, yeah. So anyway, so you know, check and see. By the time you hear us, it's going to be done. But check Hulu if you have it. Keep an eye out on Disney Plus for it. But apparently, it's going to talk about creating um, the exhibit. It's going to highlight some of the uh, some of the artifacts that are on display and um and also this is going to be running at the franklin institute until august 27th 2023 and then it is going to move on and uh, and then there's a second unit of it that's going to open in munich germany in april as well and it'll be interesting to see what they have in that one so anyway but um so, so take a look. I'm, I'm going to look for that program. Anyway. Okay, well, I use several websites and articles for this episode, including The Magic of Mary Blair at magicofmaryblair.com. Women in Design, um, Mary Blair um, at smithdesign.com. Hollywood Trailblazer, Dorothea Hold Redman um, by Hugh Art. Theme Park Tourist, Women Who Changed the Disney Parks Forever, Dorothea Redman. Um, Meg Crofton's Wikipedia page, and SK Pop or Skate Pop, I don't know how you pronounce it. But anyway, on their site, they had an article who was Alice Davis. And Collider, Alice Estes Davis, Legendary Disney Costume Designer. Both those articles are basically obituaries when she passed back in November. So, John, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? BigFatPanda.com goes to my YouTube channel. And then you can find me on the Diz Unplugged DVC Fan YouTube channel, DCL Fan, and all that stuff. You connect with me. um, uh, You send me messages, emails at MichaelBowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt.
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. 